Tommaso. When it comes to our practices for this eight weeks, the three methods of shamatha, the four immeasurables, I think it is very literally true that these practices are open and maybe inviting to people with a wide variety of worldviews from atheistic, materialistic, to theistic, to non-theistic, polytheistic, and whatever Buddhism is within all of that matrix. Um, because it just doesn't require, none of these practices require any allegiance to or commitment to any particular metaphysical framework. Having said that, there are certainly some worldviews that don't, would not give one much inspiration uh, or s- certain assumptions, beliefs, and so forth that would give hardly any inspiration or might actually take away any kind of inspiration or confidence to engage in such practice. For example, there was a uh, psychologist, he's probably still alive, um, named Alan Alport. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a very good psychologist. He wrote maybe 20 years ago that the nature of human attention is such that, um, biologically speaking, from evolutionary processes, we are just hardwired that we cannot focus in a sustained fashion on a chosen object um, because it's not biologically adaptable. And that is, if you were to go into samadhi and a saber-toothed tiger came and was sniffing around, you would just be sitting there and become a very, very easy lunch. You know? So therefore, biologically, we're adaptive to have our attention roving. Saber-toothed tiger? Saber-toothed tiger? Anybody to mate with? Anybody to run away from? Run after? You know, that's how we keep alive. That's how we procreate. But that doesn't give a whole lot of stability. So, you know, you go inward and a perfectly good mate just have, might have just passed by. <laughs> Missed her by that much. <laughs> or some saber-toothed tiger or a scorpion or a, or a cobra could slip under your door and you wouldn't even notice it. So that was his view. Well, if you really believe that, that and, and my great hero, William James, was very pessimistic about the malleability of human attention. He thought we're pretty much hardwired. Some people naturally scatterbrained, some people naturally more collected. And I have a tremendous admiration for him, but if I believed that, I wouldn't spend, if I really believed what he said, I wouldn't spend time meditating. Why, why exercise in futility? So there are worldviews, assumptions, beliefs that would superpower the practice of shamatha, the four measurables, such that you might want to drop everything and go off and just cultivate them for 10 years, motivation being so strong because it's so meaningful. It makes such good sense. It has such tremendous value in terms of the way you view reality. Another way of viewing reality could be borderline waste of time. But even from a perspective that this life is it, death is termination, even from that, shamatha, if you just start seeing from your own experience, hey, Alan Alport was wrong, William James was wrong, hallelujah, praise non-God, you know, (laughs) that praise us, praise whatever natural selection that we have a little bit of malleability here, uh, that it can make the life certainly more bearable, and the cultivation of the four measurables can actually bring some goodness to it, regardless of worldview. And that's what the Buddha said in his Kalama Sutta. Whatever you believe, if you really devote yourself to the four measurables, if there is a future life, then no worries. You've had a good life this time, and what bad could come out of this? In a future life, if you've really devoted your life to cultivating the four measurables, and if there is nothing following this life, it means total termination. You've had a good life, so you know, no complaints. So he really meant that when he said it, that you know, these are really wonderful practices either way. They can bring goodness, they can bring a lightness, a kind of joy. 
to this life one way or another. And the shamatha can obviously bring greater serenity, composure, mental balance, and that's a good thing no matter what. As we go now to the third of the four immeasurables, empathetic joy, within the Theravada context, once again, whatever you believe, it really, that's your choice. Some worldviews will be more supportive, some less. But simply spending some time, and especially as we're gradually approaching the end of our retreat, uh, I would hope that especially when it comes to empathetic joy, you would be seeing the, what is it, November 11th, I think it is, the day of, you know, the flock of doves going off in all different directions. Looking looking upon that shift in location and so forth with something like happy anticipation. Like, wow, then I'll be out of this place and really be able to practice four measurables. You know, as opposed to just having to do it in imagination and being kind of limited in terms of our little community here and the various living creatures around us. But thinking, wow, so many more opportunities. Boy, can I hardly wait to get to Phuket Airport. You know, <laughs> and find all the opportunities, you know, from the moment you just drive up to the airport and you're getting off, um, saying, oh, empathetic joy here, empathetic joy there. Oh, there's a couple meeting and they look really happy. May you be happy. May you never be separated from happiness. You know, so to be able to practice like that in the Theravada context, this third immeasurable is a cultivation of an emotion. It's taking delight, empathetic delight in two things, others' joys and their virtues. And if we look at it, I think that's really from any perspective, very much including the materialistic one, others' joys and their virtues, our joys and virtues, it's all that really makes life worthwhile. Isn't it true? Without that, if there's no really explicit joy and there's no virtue, just really, then what's the point? Just to survive and make a bunch of whole more babies that can be miserable? Just as miserable as us? Is, is that really, you know? So without joy and without virtue, really, it's just nothing. I mean, no reason to live at all, regardless of worldview. And so here it is, attending to that, broadening the scope. It's easy to take delight in our own joys. It's, if we give ourselves a chance, easy to take delight in our own virtues, but then not be locked into the tiny cubbyhole of our own individual, separate existence, but just expand and say, oh, there's so much I can take delight in, you know, by way of the media, by just keeping my eyes open, ears open, and so forth, and finding so much to take delight in, and taking delight on many occasions, for 10 seconds here and 15 seconds there. It's kind of like adds yeast to life. It allows us everything to rise. So really wonderful. And then again, that's regardless of worldview. It'll make you happier. It'll make your life more joyful, more meaningful to take delight in others' joys and their virtues. And of course, your own too. When we shift over into the Mahayana though, into the Mahayana approach, now the liturgy is different. And it's not, once again, it's not simply the cultivation of an emotion as it is in Theravada, and I say that with so much respect. But in the Mahayana, once again, we're back to aspiration, right? Why couldn't this kind of almost calling to the sky, calling to the cosmos, why couldn't we all never be separated from happiness and the causes of happiness? Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we be? Why not? Why not? You know? And waiting for an answer. If there's, if there's a good reason, why not? Tell me. Why not? If you've got no good reason, if there's no good reason, then Mintel Ragyuchi, may we never be separated. May we all never be separated from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness. And that's why I think what's so important to put in genuine, because obviously we will be separated from hedonic sources of pleasure, 
we're on, a, we're on a conveyor belt of aging, sickness, and death. So we have to grapple with that somehow. Even if you're enlightened. Still get old, probably get sick, and you will die. In most cases. There's always great transference rainbow body. You know, there's, a, there's always a little footnote. <laughs> so, but now it turns into an aspiration. May we all never be separated from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. Well, from a materialistic perspective, that just doesn't make any sense at all. There's no reason to arouse that yearning because it's not going to happen. not going to happen. Everybody's going to die. And if you really believe that death is termination, then bye-bye happiness and bye-bye causes of happiness. Bye-bye everything. Right. So I don't really see much point. I mean, it's silly. If you think death is termination then why wish that people, although they'll be terminated, they'll never be separated from happiness and the causes of happiness. They're going to be separated from everything, including existence itself, and they won't even be separated from existence, they'll just be non-existent, so get over it. But if that's not the case, if that's not the case, and something here is true, I mean, I have my own convictions, but boy, I have actually very strong convictions, as you might have noticed by now. But what I think we can all be certain of is something is true. Something's true. And it gets binary. At one point, it just gets binary. When you stop breathing and everything goes into blackout, and the, the materialists will agree with that, and the Buddhists agree with that, blackout, lights out. Either there's something after that or there isn't. It's binary. Something's true. And if there isn't, things are simple. Okay, it's a short story. Over. Now we can poetically think, you live, on, you live on in other people's memories until they get senile and they forget you. So that's kind of the... <laughs> you know, live on forever. I'm just sorry, but nobody's memory is that good. You know? But if we, if we don't terminate, man, oh man, oh man, oh man, is it different? Caramba. If we don't terminate, jeez. Then in that context, the wish may we never be separated from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. That becomes big. That actually really means something now, cosmic. And then we go full-fledged Mahayana. Tedajet karasa. Uh, now it's full-fledged Mahayana. I shall do it. I resolve. I shall do this. I shall see that we all are never separated from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. I shall do so. Well, as soon as those lips come out in the liturgy, it's got to be immediately apparent there's only one perspective from which that aspiration is sane. And it's not the, not the perspective of a coarse mind and not the perspective of a subtle mind. It can be only sane from the deepest dimension of Rikpa itself. Everything else is just crazy. It's megalomania, it's hysteria, it's bonkers. Cuckoo! Muy loco! But from the deepest dimension, there it is. And so with that aspiration, one can, even though this is still mudita, it's empathetic joy, if we think about the content, I take upon myself the responsibility 
of seeing that all sentient beings shall never be separated from happiness and the causes of happiness. For those of you who studied Buddhism fairly extensively, and a number of people here have, that sounds an awful lot like what in Tibetan is called haksam, doesn't it? This extraordinary resolve, the extraordinary resolve. I take upon myself the responsibility of, of liberating all sentient beings from suffering and bringing each one to a lasting state of well-being, to liberation. I take upon myself that responsibility. It's not quite bodhicitta yet, but it's right next door. This empathetic joy in Mahayana mode sounds an awful lot like that. I don't know how you can have that mudita, that empathetic joy, without slipping right over into this extraordinary resolve. I shall do so. And bearing in mind this is with the full awareness of this, the vastness of the cosmos, not just the seven billion human beings on this planet. So it's, it is an absolutely extraordinary resolve. And then the final line in the liturgy, the classic Mahayana liturgy, not just give it straight. May the Lama, the spiritual mentor, the Hla, the, the deities, the Buddhas, the enlightened ones, may they bless me that I may be so enabled, that I may actually be enabled to do that. I can actually do it. There's this incredible, mind-boggling resolve. Bless me that I can actually be able to carry through with that resolve. This sounds an awful lot like bodhicitta. Because you, it, it's got you right next door. You almost, it's kind of like stepping right next to a cliff and, you, and the wind just blew and you, you have to, oh, I'm falling into bodhicitta. Because for this to be a realistic, how on earth can you even imagine that you could help others effectively, that you could be enabled to help even one other sentient being, let alone all other sentient beings, never be separated from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness. How could you even imagine that if you haven't achieved it yourself? How can you imagine that if you've not become a Buddha? And as soon as that enters the aspiration, may all the enlightened ones, the spiritual mentors, may they all bless me that I may be enabled to do so. Well, the only way that you can really be enabled to do so is become a Buddha yourself. And therefore, may I achieve enlightenment, the perfect awakening of a Buddha, so that I may be enabled to help all sentient beings never be separated from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness. So this mudita is a pretty big deal. It's pretty enormous. And it's very lofty. It can sound somewhat abstract. But then as we, because I'm going to talk very little when we're actually doing the meditation, I always enjoy that so much, um, when we come to the actual meditation, then coming back to this very deep, wonderful, existential question, I really do believe, having gotten to know you somewhat now, all of you individually, and I will tell you all of you individually, it's been a privilege to get to know you at least a little bit, with no exception, really. Wonderful motivation, sincerity, depth, integrity, honesty. I'm not praising you, but that's, that's my impression. Hey, really been really wonderful. Make me feel the last seven weeks have been worthwhile. For me, too. Um, to reflect for each of us ourselves, since I, I do sense quite clearly that all of us here wish to be of service. We wish to bring, bring something good to the world. And why not bring the best? Why, you know, if you have, if you can offer something really good, then why offer something less? And then to envision what's the greatest I could offer in terms of my capacities, my abilities, my inclinations and aspirations 
keep coming back to that, back to that sacred tension. That's what I call it, just my little shorthand term. But on the one hand, I think all of you, I don't, I didn't, I've never sensed even a single one of you that hasn't expressed this or at least implied it very clearly, the wish to venture out into the world and do something good. I, I don't see, I, I never heard of one of you in all of our conversations just say, well, no, really, this practice is just about me. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just for, I, I just want some happiness myself. Uh, not other people, you know, they have to deal with it on their own. But nobody's given any inclination of that. And so, as we venture out, on the one hand, sure, absolutely. That's what the Buddha did when he got up from his Bodhi tree and walked off to Saranat. He ventured out. For six years, he didn't venture anywhere. He just ventured in. But finally, he ventured out after spending six very important years. So on the one hand, certainly this marvelous impulse to go out, to bring some good, to alleviate suffering, to help out in any way we can, the most meaningful way we can. On the one hand, that impulse. And then, it's all, it really frankly is with sad. I mean, no, from, I know for myself, kind of sadness, a bit of sadness, and not, not grief, but kind of like, oh. Sadness is, wow, am I really, really not a Buddha, you know? I mean, from deepest perspective, yeah, 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 got it, <laughs> you know? But from, from relative perspective, man, is this guy not a Buddha? Ay, ay, ay. Makes me kind of sad, you know, to think, wow. I mean, there's the Buddha, and there's Arya Bodhisattvas, and there are highly advanced Bodhisattvas, and there's, and then, There's crippled frogs, salamanders with broken legs, <laughs> and one above them is Alan Wallace. <laughs> yoy, yoy, yoy. And it's hard. It's hard not saying, oh, yoy, yoy. So sorry. I have to go to the infirmary for the next 10 to 12, 20, 30 years. There's really damaged goods here. The notion of sitting up on a Dharma throne and giving the pretense of teaching other people Dharma is such, you know, like embarrassing. Like somebody else should really be here. I'll vacate quickly. Any job applications? You know? <laughs> and so feeling kind of sadness that while we're trying to venture out, bringing out our mental afflictions, limitations, you know, wow. Why not just go in and try to do some damage control inside. So there's the tension. So how much and when, and for how long and in what way to come in? How much, when, and in what ways to come out? Where is the greatest benefit? Where is the greatest benefit? And it's not getting a right answer at one point in time and then just sticking with that forever. It's for me, I know for myself, it's just personal. But it's an ongoing question. And, and hitting 60 when I was here, I mean, we started the spring retreat very shortly after I became a right, no, just, just before, I think, within a couple of days of my turning 60. 60 is a nice round number. It kind of like tells you you're on the downhill slope, you're going to be dead soon. It's kind of a nice, you're definitely, if you're, if you're only halfway over, it's borderline miraculous. If you're really fortunate, you're two-thirds finished, and you may be 99.9 finished because you don't know whether you're going to make it through the night. And seeing that, then questions really do come up. And that is how to be of greatest benefit, not only over the short term, 
but the long term. And how can we really be of greatest benefit to help people? And the, and the question for me comes now, having taught for a long time, I was told to, I had to really, unless I want to just bolt from my, t- from my lamas and say, I'm not going to follow you anymore, but I'm not prepared to do that. So I've been teaching a long time. But really what rises up enormously for me at this point, now at the age of 60, is achieve the path, reach the path, insofar as I'm not simply focusing on my own practice, help other people reach the path, because there's lots of other people who are doing teaching dharma, good Christian dharma, Buddhist dharma, Theravada, Vajrayana, Zen, helping out the poor, helping the ill, helping with education, helping the mentally ill, and so many different ways. There's so many wonderful thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people doing all of that, but so few who can effectively lead others onto the path. So few, it seems, unless I'm just deluded. Of course I am, but it's a matter of how deluded. But so few that even talk about it, let alone effectively lead others to reaching the path. So now they entered the freeway around that great Mahayana path as bodhisattvas. Seem to be rather few. So I have to say that's my top priority. If nobody else wants to come along, then that makes my life easier than just solitary retreat. Very simple. If other people want to come along, then I have no choice and I have to help. Otherwise, I'd be a big disappointment to my teachers. I don't know how much disappointment already, but I'd be a bigger disappointment. So that's for me where things come down. Reach the path, proceed along the path. Help others if people are interested. Help them, do all you can. What else can you do? Since I've been a recipient of so much kindness, inconceivable kindness from my own teachers, not to share with others would be, I think, reprehensible. So to my mind, that really comes down to those issues. So let's practice empathetic joy. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Balance between relaxation and vigilance. Ease and clarity.
than like releasing a dove from a cage. Release your attention. And let it rove, but rove with intention. To attend to those people in the world who experience joy, embody joy, on the successes, the happinesses of others, wherever they are, near and far. Attend closely. And in so doing, let their joys, their happiness, their satisfactions become real for you to the point that you may not even feel a separation between their joy and your own. Let your attention rove. With each out-breath, breathe out your own satisfaction, your own delight in the well-being of others.
and attend to the virtues of others of all kinds. From the smallest act of kindness to great acts of altruism and philanthropy, acts of selflessness, public acts of virtue as well as acts of virtue that are deeply solitary. As individuals probe into the depths of their own being to explore their own inner resources. Attend to those living in the present and in the past, to all those who have blessed the world with their goodness, and take delight with each outbreath.
And then if you will, shift the whole meditation to, a, to another dimension. Why couldn't we all never be parted from genuine happiness and its causes? May we never be parted. May I make it so. May I be blessed to be enabled to do so.
release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature. It's like there's a lot of mail here, so I'll try to do something I'm no good at and give short answers. So I've not read hardly any of these. Oh, yeah, lots and lots and lots and lots. Okay. I thought there'd be less at the end. You're supposed to get all your problem, all your unclarity. So by the time you get no more questions, all clear, you can go away now. That's what I was in waiting for. Okay, here's the first one. I've not read any of these, so I'll just read them straight. Could you please explain what does it mean to not lie in the context of the five precepts? What happens when lying is the right thing to do? Or when someone is being humble, claiming to have no realizations, etc.? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a nice fastball. You couldn't just throw me a nice fastball. You always have to throw the spitballs with a curve, right? <laughs> yeah. In Theravada, as far as I can tell, Pali Canon, Theravada, don't lie means just don't lie, period. No footnotes, nothing. Just don't lie, period. So if somebody, if you see somebody, here's a classic one that comes from the Mayanda tradition, but now with a Theravada response. If somebody comes running right by your cottage, running panic-stricken, another person runs, run, comes running right after them, this person ran from your right to the left, and then the guy with the gun is coming from your right to the left and he said, did you see somebody running right by here? From the Theravada tradition would be, I'm sorry, I'm meditating. That's it. Just, sorry, can't help you. That is a true statement, I cannot help you. That's it, you didn't tell any lie. My honor tradition, they might very well say, we've heard this many times. Oh, yeah, right where you came from, the other way. <laughs> Running is that, and 
you know, and, and give them misdirection, you know, really set them in another direction so that person doesn't commit the evil of killing somebody, the other person doesn't become a victim. So Theravada, the five precepts, just flat out don't do them. Don't kill, period. Like that. And don't lie and so forth. Mahayana, there, is, there are Mahayana precepts, explicitly, Bodhisattva precepts, stating that for the sake of sentient beings, when the occasion arises that it is of greater benefit to sentient beings to break one of the precepts of individual liberation, break the precept of individual liberation. That includes killing, stealing, lying. Something like sexual misconduct, it's hard to imagine. But lying, yes, could happen. If it's a greater benefit, then that trumps it. That trumps it. So it's very clear. And you must do it. If you're really a bodhisattva, then... And that's verbal and physical. There are no precepts saying, oh, for the sake of all sentient beings, have ill will. You know, that you would commit mental non-virtues, because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but as far as the other one, of course, it is interesting. And I, I did actually read this one before, so I was able to warm up a little bit. Uh, those who are so humble claiming to have no realizations when, in fact... You know, let's imagine that they do have realizations. I thought of three cases there, th three ways of answering that, each one of which I think is meaningful. First of all, let's just take this within a Tibetan context. So again, again, Chambawandu, this extraordinary yogi, years in retreat in Tibet, lived on meditation pills, came down to India. When I knew him, I think he'd been in India for 20, 25 years, in total retreat the whole time. So he was a yogi's yogi. He had the great respect of people like Lama Zubarambuche, Lama Yeshe, but pretty much everybody who knew him, oh, Genchamawondu, amazing, amazing yogi. And he was. I knew him. He's one of my teachers. Well, when he smi smiled with, with this beautific grin, saying, I have no realizations, well, he was treating me like a Tibetan. And in the Tibetan context, number one, you never ask somebody, what's your realization? It's, it, 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 you just don't do that. I mean, it's not your business, and it's... And so, in that context, when a lama says this, everybody knows by context that, of course, you don't take this literally. When His Holiness, I when His Holiness says, "I have no bodhicitta," you know, I, there's hardly a Tibetan alive that would say, "Oh, oh, I thought he did, son of a gun." <laughs> you know, I don't think there's any Tibetan that believes that. But he'll keep on saying, "Oh no, I just have the aspiration to have bodhicitta. I have no bodhicitta." Yeah, and but everybody knows, so there's no deceit. Nobody thinks, nobody within that culture believes that he's saying something literally correct, true, so there's no deceit, there's no misinformation. He's speaking within his tradition, and this is a common way of speaking. It's like being married and having <laughs> your spouse develop a great big pimple right on the tip of the nose. Great big one. It's almost like a neon light. And the spouse comes and said, do you think it's noticeable? No. No, no. <laughs> Nobody, you can hardly even see it. <laughs> That's the right thing to say if you want to keep your marriage alive. <laughs> you know? Oh, no, just a little bit of powder. Nobody will notice it. Uh, it's convention. Yeah. Likewise, there are many pleasantries, this part of our culture. How nice to see you again. <laughs> oh, please don't go. <laughs> of course I'd be happy to help you. <laughs> or, what's my favorite phrase? I would be more than happy. 
there's a little bit happy, there's happy, there's, and then there's more than happy, which means not at all happy. I'd be more than happy. You'd like to borrow a thousand dollars? I'd be more than happy to lend you the thousand dollars. Don't even think about paying it back. So we have, you know, that's it's it's way of talking within a, a, a context of courtesy. We have that in Tibetan Buddhism. They have that for that. So there's one. So there's no deceit. There's no misinformation, because everybody knows this is the situation. This is what yogis do. Occasionally there will be an exceptional case like a milarepa or a Dupanambache, who will gaze right into the camera and say, I can remember all my past lives, he will say, outwardly, I probably appear like a human being to you. Inwardly, it's totally different. Occasionally, that does happen. Such a being is so far beyond the obstacles that would arise by declaring one's own realization that it's no longer a concern. And so it just says, straight. Because there's nothing to fear. And that happens rarely, but it does happen. And that was public. I mean, that was really quite amazing to look into a camera where, you know, lots of people will see the movie Yogis of Tibet. Say, whoa, there's still people that can say that. And he's not some hippie. He's not some... No, he's Dupan Rinpoche. Wow. So occasionally it will happen. And then we can just be very delighted with that. Milarepa, very candid. But others, even to their dying breath, you know. And then you see it only when they pass away. And then, like there was this one Geshe about 10 years ago uh, name. Very, very just sh three letters. Starts with an A. Can't quite pull it out right now. He's a geshe, and everybody, and all, he, everybody knew he was living in Eastern Tibet. And a good friend of mine, a, a Roman Catholic monk, went and researched this. He was very interested in rainbow body. So can't remember his name right now, but he was a geshe. And the people in the village where he lived, they just knew he was a very virtuous man, very ethical. And he seemed to really like to say Omane Pemahung a lot. So he'd be very virtuous, very ethical, very good monk, very pure, and then Omane Pemahung, Omane Pemahung, Omane Pemahung. And then he passed away. Oh, surprise. Rainbow body. His body just dissolved into light, left nothing behind except for hair and nails. It's about 10 years ago in Tibet. So, you know, then he showed his, it was kind of like playing, playing poker. What you got? Uh, nothing. Nothing. I don't even have two pair. What do you got? <laughs> I got nothing. I'll take four. I uh, still got nothing. I call. Royal flush. Call is when you die. So there's, how do you say, culture. Second one is what's your realization? I have no realization. One way of looking at this is to see it within the relative bandwidth of realizations, from having a little glimmering of a little stability in, of attention, for example, or a little bit of opening of the heart, up to bodhisattva, Arya bodhisattva, high-level Arya bodhisattva, Buddha, and so forth, all of this bandwidth. And for those who have really studied Buddhism, has some appreciation of the extraordinary bandwidth, the spectrum of realizations, and seeing that, be like standing, if, if, if you could, imagine standing at the base of Mount Everest at sea level. Of course, it's much higher, the base is much higher, but imagine from sea level you could look up at the top of Mount Everest, and then you get, and then you get to a higher platform and you're 10 feet up. Say, so what's, what's, how, how high have you ascended? You say, I haven't ascended at all. Well, go up 1,000 feet. I haven't ascended at all. Go up 5,000 feet. Oh, nothing to speak of. 
because you're still seeing relatively, you haven't even made it to the truck stop at the base of Mount Everest yet. And so relatively speaking, then my yogis might say, nothing to speak of, nothing to speak of. Compared to the possibilities, there's nothing to talk about. So that's another possibility. Final possibility, I mean, there are many others, but these are things, just three that leapt to mind. I said I'd give short answers. You know how good I am at that. But the final one is, when a person like Gen Chamawandu says no realization, or others of his caliber, or his holiness for that matter, then consider another possibility. When they say, I, look out when yogis say I. I have no realization. I have no bodhicitta. I've achieved nothing. I have not, I've not found the path. I have, I have no shamatha. I have no... I have. And then think of the Heart Sutra. With respect to emptiness, there is no achievement. There is no path. There is no suffering. There is no cause of suffering. There is no cessation and there is no path. With respect of emptiness, nothing to be said. If they're speaking from the perspective of a direct realization or even profound realization of emptiness, then to say, what realization do you have? The literally correct answer is, I have no achievement. And then they burst into (laughs) delight. Such are my speculations. In the Pali Canon, there is a description of the Buddha's enlightenment where he's reflecting on dependent arising. He wonders, with cessation of what is there cessation of consciousness? Oh yeah, this is a well-informed question. So among the 12 links, consciousness is way up there towards the beginning, not at the beginning, but very short to it. With the, ce- with the cessation of what is there cessation of consciousness, he comes to the conclusion that with the cessation of name and form, there is cessation of consciousness. What does he mean by this? Okay, within that context, clearly, number one, just by context, there's just no possible way of asserting that the Buddha is saying this is the way to absolutely annihilate. It, it just makes no sense in the broader context of his teachings. What he's referring to now is conditioned conscious, consciousness within the context of ignorance, of name and form, of consciousness and so forth, consciousness that is configured by, empowered by, driven by karma, and so the without name and form, Glenn, by the way, can fill you in on, in on a lot of detail of this. I'm sure he's an experienced teacher. But with the cessation of name and form, there's the cessation of consciousness. So this was within conditioned existence, conditioned consciousness that goes on from lifetime to lifetime. And it's tracing it back. So it's tracing back from ignorance right through the 12, entering, ending in grief, lamentation, and so forth and so on. It's within that context. So it's a very specific mode of consciousness. It's not referring to substrate consciousness. It's certainly not referring to rikpa. Um, it's referring to samsaric consciousness that is conditioned by ignorance and the effulgences of ignorance. So I'll just leave it at that. Want commentary? Glenn's the man. I'm sure Pelsang knows a lot about this as well. What is bodhisattva? Bodhisattva, the Pali for bodhisattva. What does this mean in the context of the Pali canon? Well, a bodhisattva or a bodhisattva is, of course, a person who is committed to the achievement of Buddhahood, one who is striving to become Buddha, a Buddha. Uh, it's the very nature of that motivation, the full context of it is not richly developed within the Pali Canon. There are references to, to those who are seeking individual liberation. There are references to 
uh, I'll just give the Sanskrit, Pratyeka Buddha. There are references to these in the, in the Pali Canon, and there are references to Bodhisattvas in the Pali Canon as well, as well as in the Theravada tradition, in Buddhaghosa's Visuddhimagga. There are references to those following individual, their own Shravaka, Arhatship, to those who are, who are striving for enlightenment as a Pratyeka Buddha and those who are striving for enlightenment as a Buddha. As a Buddha. So this is not alien to the Theravada tradition or the Pali Canon, but they're simply not very richly developed if we compare it to the whole corpus of the Mahayana teachings, where it is absolutely central. So there it is. There are references to it, and it's simply a person who is aspiring to become a Buddha. That's what a Bodhisattva is. It's on that path. But it's not very fully developed, which raises interesting questions, but there are so many more questions waiting that I won't pursue them. So we'll just move on. Oh, in the lives of Princess Mandarava, Mandarava, the Indian, Indian consort of Padmasambhava, it is described how after spreading the Dharma in Nepal, the Dakini went to a place called Gumri. It was a city of bloodthirsty butchers. Um, some interpret this as Washington, D.C., but that is <laughs> definitely speculative. Bloodthirsty butchers filled with mental afflictions, but she turned the Dharma wheel for three months and they all achieved liberation. Wow. They didn't seem to have a strong karmic momentum of practice from their previous lives, so how could they attain liberation in such a short time? Yeah. Um, happily, I've just been reading the, this wonderful commentary to the Dhammapada. And there's a story, now again, I've read, it's about 450 pages I've read over the last six months, so there's a lot of stories there, and, and I won't get all the details exactly right. But it was quite an interesting story of, during the time of the Buddha, there was a woman who became a stream enterer. There were quite a few women who became stream enterers. She was a layperson, she was not a nun. Became stream enterer, gained realization of nirvana. Okay, so quite formidable. I was quite struck. After she became stream enterer, she met a hunter, a man who made his living by killing creatures. She fell in love with him. She fell in love with the hunter. And she married him. I think they had children, if I recall correctly. And his job was a hunter, so he would go out, set his traps, make his arrows, and so forth and so on. And she would be, and she was his wife, which means if he said, honey, I need some more wood, or honey, I need this, honey, I need that, then she's his wife. She would help him. This is quite an odd situation. And then, as I, again, I read this some weeks ago, if not months ago, one thing led to another. Her hunter husband met with the Buddha, and then something, connection. He became at least dream emperor. The husband did. And then the monks came back and said, you know, I think they were a little bit grumpy. Like, <laughs> especially those monks that hadn't achieved dream entry themselves, and here's this hunter dude achieving dream enter. And they asked the Buddha, you know, his wife is a stream enterer. Which stream enterer, you really don't apply yourself to non-virtuous things. I mean, you're really quite free of that. And there, but there she was helping her husband hunt, just killing one creature after another. What's up with that? And he said, and, his, and, the, and the Buddha said, 
it wasn't that she in any way wanted to harm those creatures. She wasn't encouraging behind those creatures. All she was really doing is simply helping her husband. And then her husband did what he was doing. But that was that. So one other story, and this is the story, the background story. I don't recall whether I've told in this retreat. I found it so interesting because I just got the background story recently. It was Bahia, the famous one who achieved enlightenment more quickly than any other, any other disciple of the Buddha. Even Moggallana Buddha and Sariputta, even they took a week or two. This Bahia, it was like one Dharma talk and it was a really short Dharma talk. It makes my, my answers look like you know, an encyclopedia. What his story was, was really interesting. Here's the man achieved enlightenment ever so quickly. The story was that he, and again, check it out, because my memory is fallible, but I don't think I'm grossly misleading you. He was on a ship, and the ship, the ship wrecked. The ship crashed, whatever ships do. And he was washed ashore. I think he was the only survivor in a foreign land, and he had nothing. He was just, a, you know, there he was, naked on shore, and he survived. And so he basically just covered himself with bark and lived in lived in just a little shanty, some little crummy thing he put together, and he lived on alms. And then, after a while, because he was living so simply and so ascetically, people started thinking that he was an ascetic, that he was a holy man, when it was really just humbless, he was a homeless bum. But he's living, he looked like, you know, kind of naked, bark, didn't eat much, must be holy, you know. <laughs> so people started following him, thinking he really must have had some deep wisdom. Whereas he was just... A, he was just a shipwrecked dude. But a lot of people started gathering him. Oh, he's such a such such ascetic. And finally he just thought, man, I'm, I'm out of here. But he developed this really strong wish to actually achieve liberation. And not put on the phone not go along with the phony front. And it was really a passionate yearning. <coughs> really wanted to achieve liberation. And he sought out who can who can guide me? Who can guide me? And he came to the Buddha. And he, and he came to the Buddha when he was on the alms round. And he said, please teach me right now. I mean, he was, this guy was really, he was insistent, please teach me right now. And the Buddha said, I'm, I'm in the midst of alms round. Cool it. And the guy was so insistent, yeah, but teach me right now. And the Buddha said, I'm in the midst of alms round. He said, yeah, but right now. And finally, the Buddha, and the Buddha waited, 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 and then, okay. Then he gave him the paragraph and he became arhat. You think, well, wait a minute. He was just a phony. So the moral of the story is you can't tell. You can't tell. People's karmic momentum doesn't always manifest obviously. In some cases it does. The tuku who is, you know, has marvelous signs at birth or displays great, great attraction, devotion to dharma, shows great compassion, wisdom, goes naturally into the full lotus position at two years old. You know, there are people like that where it dis it's obviously displayed. But karma is so mysterious, the Buddha said it's the most complex aspect of reality altogether, just the intricacies of karmic relationships that, you know, you can have Ben Kunjian. Ben Kunjian was, you know, this, I told you, mentioned it before, he lived centuries ago, but he was a um, bandit, a really pretty a bloodthirsty bandit, killed probably lots and lots of people and became one of the most beloved of all the Kadamba practitioners, you know, but you would never guess it from the first part of his life. So the simple moral of the story is you can't tell, you just can't tell because you have the crust of what's manifesting in this life and then beneath it this tremendous momentum from past lives. There's no telling unless you're a Buddha, unless you're profoundly clairvoyant. You can't tell. Oh, are emotions special mental events? Sure. 
I think we're all special in our own ways. <laughs> Desires are special. Mental afflictions are special. But I'm sure there's nothing more behind it than this. As I understand feelings as one of the skandhas, that is correct. Feelings, pleasure, pain, indifference, that's one of the five skandhas, have a special position in human experience. Um, that's very true, it's and it's because of, because of our experience of pleasure, pain, and indifference that pleasure gives rise to attachment, pain gives rise to hatred, indifference gives rise to delusion, stupidity, dullness, and lethargy. Lath and so on the one hand, but also our experience of pleasure can catalyze loving-kindness, Pleasure experience of misery can catalyze compassion, and the, and the experience of both of them can catalyze renunciation and bodhicitta. So feelings are what make us move, and that's very big. So they're primal, they're important, that's why they get a category, all of them, all of their own. Emotions, this Western term of emotions, is much more nuanced. Its borders are debated even by modern experts in the field of affective psychology. Paul Lechman has his seven, but then there's debate about or whether compassion is an emotion, whether, oh, various things are emotions. So the borders are fuzzy simply because it's human beings defining these terms. And one will define it one way, another one will define it another way. It seems that Buddhism accepts the view of discrete basic emotions. Sure, I mean, using this modern Western term, Buddhism doesn't deny that there's surprise, there's fear, disgust, contempt, happy, sad, and something else, anger. Sure, there's what's to do, what's to refute. At the same time, emotions are viewed as mental events that are not different from other cognitive events. Uh, well, they have their own distinct characteristics. Um, yeah, so could you please elaborate? I can't, I can't much, I guess, because time is so short. But, but the, um, the category of emotions and, and the significance of it, the prominence of emotions, or sometimes even kind of could be used interchangeably with passions, uh, this traces right back to Greek antiquity, back to Aristotle especially. We have reason and then we have our passions. And reason, must, reason is our highest virtue. Therefore, the pursuit of eudaimonia is living in accordance with reason, intelligence. And this must master, this must subdue, control the passions, the emotions. There's a really a top-down, and I think it's a very gender-specific kind of thing as well, that men stand for reason and women stand for emotions. I, I think it's ridiculous, but... There's a lot of that in Western civilization. And so it's very big. And then, of course, the, no the notion that this is Aristotelian that was adopted by the Darwinians, and that if all of our emotions are fine, it's just finding out not too much, not too little, and, and express them in the, in the appropriate circumstances. And then basically it's fine. So don't get rid of anger. Just don't have too much and express it in the right place. And likewise for desire and so forth. So in this regard, it's, it's just a very different template superimposed upon experience with liberation nowhere in sight, because that just wasn't Aristotle's deal any more than it is that of modern psychology. It's just not aimed at the complete eradication of anything, but trying to get by and suffer less. So Buddhism doesn't have that big monumental category of emotions or passions over here and then intelligence or reason over there, but rather these are mental afflictions. And bearing in mind, this is crucial, and then I'll stop on this point, prajna, as a mental, as a mental factor, prajna, is best not translated as wisdom, whereas you say perfection of wisdom, I think that is our translation. Uh, people give variations, but we're going to always come back to perfection of wisdom. We can't escape it. It's, it's, it's carved in granite by now. But prajna, or shut up as a mental factor, to translate that as wisdom is not a good translation. It doesn't mean the same thing. It means intelligence. 
it really just means intelligent. And when we look at definition, it is that ability of discerning intelligence to be able to intelligently recognize this is that, this is beneficial, that's not beneficial. Now, having said that, so it's, it's being really bright. It's just, it really is very close to our Western notion. Ah, this person is so intelligent. This person's brilliant. This person, not very smart. It's exactly that. Well, the big deal here for Buddhism is there is, it's called in Tibetan, shedap nyomonche, afflictive intelligence. Your intelligence may be 180 on the IQ chart, but if it's conjoined with racism or arrogance or malevolence or some other pretty significant neurosis, this means that the mental affliction is, is actually able to co-opt your full intelligence to help you design more fuel-efficient ways to gas people by the hundreds of thousands and take great delight in that. That was really a good job. And you use your full intelligence, your brilliance, to create weapons of mass destruction, to murder people, to develop greater pesticides that can poison the earth much more effectively, and so forth and so on. So it's still intelligence. But in a way, the, the more you have, the worse it is. Because it's all being co-opted by mental affliction. It'd be better to be stupid. Right? So. Oh, yeah. Can you share with us what qualities were you found more special and lovable than them? Oh, yo, yo, Okay, here's a big question, but I'll, I, tr I try to be very concise. It's very nice when you talk about your lamas during your life. I think the connection guru-student guru and Mahayana Buddhism can be very strong, that's for sure. Can you share with us what qualities you found more special and lovable in them? Sure, I'll mention just one. I mean, obviously, that could take a lot of time, but. I do remember very, very poignantly when I first went off and lived with Tibetans in fall of 1971, having met this incredibly lovable, warm, motherly lama, the Sakya Lama, Sakya Sherap Gyanzen. He's still alive in Switzerland. But he's a monk. But I don't know that I've ever met a more motherly man in my life. He was so warm, nurturing, and really feminine. Nothing bad, nothing yucky about it. But just so warm and nurturing, sweet, like I... Wow, I didn't know there were men like that. That was my big, and it was inc just incredibly sweet, just warm, affectionate, supportive, helpful. Just wow, that's a new one. I haven't seen that kind before. And then I went off to Dharamsala living with Tibetans and then training six days a week with Geshe Ngaman Taige and then periodically being able to hike up the mountains to be able to receive instruction from Geshe Raptan. That was during the opening months. And as the months went by, with these two lamas in particular, and then over the course of the next four years, then more and more lamas, meeting His Holiness, of course, but these two lamas, Geshe on Taige down in the library, and then Geshe Raptan up in the meditation hut. And that was quite a balance. Bo both extraordinary Geshe's, I mean, really first-rate scholars. And both uh, should give no indication that Geshe on Taige was only a scholar. He was a formidable meditator. But he was manifesting, there was a teacher, Geshe Raptan was already a formidable scholar, but he was manifesting as a yogi, you know, meditating day and night for six years on end. But as I met, met got, got to know these two Geshe's, but I think especially of Geshe Ngamantaige, just because it was six days a week, six days a week of having him sit on a chair very much like this and just radiate his joy and his love of Dharma, his love of the students, his faith in the Dharma. But what really got to me quickly, and it's never left, and it was just embodied in that one, but then I've seen it many, many times since then. This Geshe Ngamantaige, he was smart. By any criterion, man, was he smart. 
And I'm kind of smart, and I've met a lot of people who are smart. I've met a lot of smart people. By any criterion, Geshe Ngaman Taiki was one really smart man. He was intelligent. He also really knew a lot. I mean, I, could, I never was able to answer, ask any question about Dharma. That not, not once, and this was a couple of years of really a lot of instruction, a lot, and I, I asked a lot of questions back then. Relentless. But he, every question I posed, he always came back with something really smart. Every single time. That gave me food for thought. Now, wow, ah, ooh, ah, oh, wow. You know, it was every time it was smart. But there was always this compassion. It was just flowing a compassion, joyousness that just seemed relentless. But I'd never seen in my life, and I was 21, 21, 22 at the time, I'd never in my life met anybody who was so smart and so knowledgeable and so joyous and so compassionate. And it was all of a piece. They were all intermingled. They were all synergistic. I'd never met that. I'd never met that before. And I've met it now a number of times, quite a number of times since then. I can say up to the age of 21, 22, I'd met pl plenty of smart people. I think we all have. Really smart people. Overall, I found them not particularly happy and nothing exceptional in terms of kindness, warmth, compassion. Just nothing special at all. At all. And then... Coming from a Christian background, I met some very, very compassionate, warm-hearted, kind people. <laughs> and some of them were quite intelligent. <laughs> but it didn't seem to have any real relationship with their kindness and warmth and goodness and generosity. And it didn't seem to have any relationship. Whereas with Gishingo and Taige, it was absolutely interrelated. His compassion was an expression of his intelligence. His intelligence and wisdom and knowledge was an expression of his compassion. They were just not divisible. That made quite an impression. And early on, I mean, even when my understanding was so primitive, hardly knew this from that, I just knew, it was like in that Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal movie. <laughs> Whatever she's having, I want some of that. <laughs> Anybody seen the movie? Whatever, they, whatever they've got, what, whatever she's having, it was seeing a woman over a yonder table appearing to have an orgasm in the movie, appearing to have an orgasm. No, I remember. It was, it was Meg Ryan pretending to have an orgasm. And then the woman at the other table looking over at Meg Ryan and saying, whatever she's having, I'll have some of that. You know? <laughs> well, again, maybe it's a crude example, but whatever they're having, I'll have some of that. You know, if this is, this is how you turn out, if you spend your life studying Dharma, practicing Dharma, if you turn out smart, knowledgeable, wise, compassionate, joyful, generous, and altruistic, if that's the model, give me three helpings, please. You know, that's, that's where I want to go. Shouldn't all Buddhist practitioners make a strong effort in becoming vegetarian to at least, to at least a little in diminished animal suffering? Have a strong effort. It's complex. I've answered this so many times. I'm, I must say I'm bored stiff with the question. Um, so I'll give my... Short answer, uh, if you can be healthy, if you can be healthy, if you're, devoting, if you're devoting yourself to Dharma, that's the first question, Buddhist practitioners, if you're really devoting yourself to Dharma, especially for the sake of all sentient beings, if you can be vegetarian and remain healthy, absolutely, that's better. No question, absolutely. But now let's not stop. If you can be vegan and not be eating dairy products, knowing full well you're only one step away 
from the death of all the male cattle, all the male sheep, and so forth and so on. You're only one step away. And, of course, no eggs, because you're one step away from the death of all the roosters, because they, they kill all the males, except for one or two. If you cannot eat any dairy, not eat any eggs at all, that's better, because that's only one step removed from killing them directly. No egg farmer ever makes a living by keeping all the male chickens alive. All the prophet would dither away with all these roosters running around eating up your grain. And likewise, no dairy farmer ever makes a living keeping all the males alive. You have to kill them all. That's just the way the dairy business, that's, that's for our ice cream here. And that's for every other dairy product there is. All the males die except for the bull. He has a happy day. And so, better to be vegan. But now, if you can remain healthy and you can afford it, better to be vegetarian vegan. Because if you're eating grains that are raised with pesticides, then you're just one step away from the death of thousands, hundreds of thousands of insects and other sentient beings who wanted to eat what you got, but they were wiped out with chemical warfare. And you're responsible because you're eating the food that caused the deaths of them. So you're only one so better to be, veg to be organic vegan so that no pesticides were used, or no pesticides were used. That's better. But now, if you still eat organic rice, then you must know that when you harvest rice, then they drain all the rice paddies, and all those thousands and thousands of insects living in the rice paddy, living in the water, when they drain the rice paddies, all of those die, because the birds come and gobble them all up, because they were, they're aquatic animals, and they're going to all die, because you can't harvest rice without draining the rice paddy. So you're one step removed from killing all those insects that needed to be killed to drain the rice paddy, organic rice, so you can have your rice. So it's better if you can stay healthy, not to eat grains at all, but to be fructarian. Fructarian, not eat grains, just live on fruit, right? But then be vegetarian fructarian, because again, they spray, they spray the fruit, so not vegetarian, to be organic fructarian, so you eat only fruits for which no pesticides were used. So now we've locked you into being only fruits. But now, of course, other creatures would have really liked the fruit that you gobbled up. You got to it first, you big meanie. But the birds were all waiting just to get in, and they, then they grab it just before the birds got in. So, and let alone honey, that's just highway robbery, because you got into the, into the beehive and ripped them off of their hard work. All that honey they created, you just come in and rip it off. So you're a big highway robber of all the bees, and you're kind of ripping off all the birds that would love to eat that fruit. So it's really better if you can live on meditation pills, like Genchambawandu did. And that is using just a little bit of barley, a little bit of honey, not much, and then flour, dried flower petals, and just live on three of those each day, like Genchambawandu did. That would be better. If you can do that and stay healthy, that would be better. But there's still honey in those meditation pills, and there is barley, and sentient beings die when people harvest barley, they crunch them all over the insects and so forth. So if you can live on the food of samadhi and still stay healthy and not eat anything at all, that's better. So f find where you can stay healthy within that spectrum. But do stay healthy. But if you're not practicing dharma, then no big deal. Then don't stay healthy. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> And if you're living a really unwholesome life, then the Buddhist principle is the shorter the life, the better. Oh, yeah. Oh, lasso. So. <laughs>
<laughs> here are the two, the two stragglers that never get answered. I'm going to answer one of them just so we don't have it, both of them straggling forever. This, I told of the story at, uh, of the yogi at Bob Thurman's house and said he had an interesting story. So we'll run just a little bit late because I have to answer at least one of these two story questions. His name was Lawson Tenzin. He did have a very interesting life. So we'll end on a story and we'll go off and have dinner. I had the wonderful privilege of interpreting for him. It must have been about 1985. I, asked, I wrote to Bob Thurman, just recently asked him. He couldn't remember what year either. But um, I translated for him at his home in about 1985. I was still a monk, I'm sure. And then also at the New York Open Center. He was invited there to live, give a workshop, and I translated for him there as well. So I didn't know him well, but I had a few days with him, interpreted for him, and I, and I learned about his life story. And then his life story was written up in Dharamsala in one of the publications coming out of Dharamsala. Um, I have a copy at home. His life was very interesting. He was a peasant. Uh, whether he's literate at all, I don't know. He was not an educated man. He was not a monk, not, not even remotely a scholar. He was a peasant living in the south of Tibet. Um, had a family. He had his farm. But he did something. This was during the, cold, well, 1959 or so, 58, 59, maybe a little bit later. I don't, me don't remember exactly when this happened. But he did something to piss off the Chinese authorities. And they put him in prison. They imprisoned him. He might have said, I, I, I like Buddhism or long live the Dalai Lama, something horrendous like that. So in any case, whatever he did, it was enough. And it took almost nothing to piss off the Chinese government. They, they'd imprison you for almost anything and kill you just because they didn't like the color of your robes or what have you. It was incredibly vicious. And to a large extent, I'm sorry to say, is still. So he was imprisoned. And I don't know, it was a, he was facing a death sentence or just kind of prolonged welcome to concentration camp for the next you know, years or decades. But he was able to escape. Because it wasn't one of the big prisons. It was out down on the boonies, a little village. So he was maybe like, more like the town jail. He escaped. But you can imagine this, Matt, here he is. He was probably a young man, maybe 25, 30 at the time. He escaped prison. And he's got his wife probably family right over there, the farm. Right over the hill, he can escape out of Tibet. It's, it was not a long trip. He was in southern Tibet. So he's looking at this, and he knows full well that it's going to be a very, very short time before the Chinese discover that he's escaped prison. It's obvious to anybody, the first place they're going to look is at his home. So imagine being in this situation. You're going to go home and try to fetch your wife, and in so doing, run an great likelihood they're going to be waiting for you, snap you up, and kill you. And maybe your wife, too. Or are you going to leave your family behind, all your possessions, your stand-up clothes, and run? What are you going to do? Well, he ran. He figured there's no way I can even save my family. So he just escaped on his own. But he escaped with tremendous bitterness, anger, and hatred, Bidding, these people have taken everything from me, and I did nothing wrong at all. They took everything from me, my family, my possessions, everything. They take now taken my homeland, and I just want to kill them. I just, I just want to kill them. I want to kill Chinese. It was really simple. He's a peasant. He's not a lama. He's not. He just the Chinese block this group. They took everything from me. They've ruined me, and I want to kill them. So he got down to India, and he said. Figured, you know, he's a simple man. How can I kill Chinese? 
So he um, figured there's only one way I can kill Chinese. That's join the Indian army. Because they might have a skirmish. They might have some kind of battle. There were border disputes between India and China during that time. And uh, he figured there might be another one. He might get a chance to shoot some Chinese. So he joined the Indian army with the hope of being able to kill some Chinese. And he put in, I think, one whole, whatever they call it, period, three years, four, four years. Didn't get a chance to kill any Chinese. Signed up for another, what do they call it? Another noun there. Another... Yeah, another enlistment, but there's another word as well. But he enlisted again for a second, whatever. There's a noun there. Doesn't matter. You all know what I'm saying. Another tour of duty, something like that. But during this, I think it was a second tour of duty. And again, still hadn't had a chance to kill a, ch a single Chinese. He's just sitting there, the barracks. Then I think it just gradually dawned on him of the utter futility, the, the, the utter dukkha, of everything about his life. Living in the military, no family, no joy, fundamental motivation of malice, resentment, wanting to kill people. And suddenly, just out of that, I don't know how sudden it was, but out of that, just a genuine sense of renunciation arose. He says, I can't live this way. And happily being a Tibetan, he knew there was something else. There was Dharma. So even before his his uh, tour of duty, but there's another word for it too, I just can't get it right now, before his enlistment was over, he went to Dharmsala, and he had the, the chutzpah, he had some courage, to seek out, he went to the senior tutor of the Dalai Lama, incredible Lama, and he got an audience with him and said, I want to become a monk and achieve enlightenment, and can you help me? Because there's nothing in this life his family was left behind. He had nothing here. He had no eight worldly dharmas at all. There was nothing that he was attached to, nothing he was attracted to. It was empty. It was an ocean of suffering, and he just wanted out. Came to Lingrambache, I mean, the chutzpah of the man, going to the Dalai Lama's senior tutor and said, can you help me? I just want to achieve liberation. And Yonza Lingrambache saw that this is the genuine article. This is a man who really simply wants to be liberated. And he said, yes, I will help you. So go back, finish your tour of duty, start doing some preliminary. This is a simple man. His faith is strong. He's not a big intellect, questioning, questioning, and questioning. So go back, go back, finish your tour of duty. Start doing the prostrations. Doing, start doing preliminary practices. Prostrations, Vajrasattva. You've got a lot of stuff to purify. So there he was, this man. Imagine this renunciation. Because the military, this is Indian military. They are macho. As a bunch of Sikhs, they are tough, very male men. This is a macho, macho army. They all got beards. They're really, you know, tough. And here comes this Tibetan starting to offer prostrations, you know, in the barracks. And I, can, I can hardly imagine what the other soldiers would have thought of him. But again, he just doesn't care. And he just continued, continued. His tour of duty was over. He went to Ling Rinpoche, said, I did the preliminaries. Please guide me on the path to enlightenment. And he taught him Lamrim Shemo. He taught him a piece, Lamrim Shemo, the great exposition of the stages of the path, Tsongkhapa. And he taught him a piece, and he said, okay, here's a chunk. Go off and practice it. Tell me, come back when you've gained some experience, some insight, realization. So he found himself, this is, um, he found himself a cave up at about 5,000 meters, way above where the yogis live, way, way high, 5,000 meters. He found a, a, an empty cave, because there, there are not many camped, empty caves there. You know, there are Tibetans already there. 
but he found a place to move in and he'd just go up there and he would practice single-pointedly whatever Lien Rinpoche taught him. He'd come back, report, Lien Rinpoche would give him another chunk. He said, okay, do this. And he'd go up and they'd come down and get another chunk. So back and forth, back and forth. Eventually he went through the whole Lamrim Jemo and then he asked for Vajrayana and, and Lien Rinpoche, then gave him Vajra, Vajrayana empowerment. He practiced Dumo. He achieved Dumo, achieved, really developed very strong uh, inner heat through his Dumo practice. Um, and lived up there for 12 years. In solitude, coming down, I believe it was once a year for a bag of lentils and a bag of rice. And then was asked to come to Massachusetts to be studied for his Dumo ability. So, and then he went back, and then six, six months, eight months later, he passed away. So, interesting story. But that's what pure renunciation looks like that he wasn't thinking, about, I better save up my money, or what if Dharma doesn't work out, I might need a job, um, where shall I live, how shall I pay my rent, oh, what about life insurance, and oh, uh, uh, health insurance, I, I better probably save up some money before I do this, but get a nice, and, and invest wisely, I better, I probably, probably should check out the Indian stock market to see what types of bonds, and whether I should hedge, go into a hedge fund or something like that, and lived as a beggar. Nothing. Just focus on practice. There was nothing else. That's a yogi's way. He completely gave up attachment to this life. And then, lo and behold, his mind became dharma. As he said, both while in meditation and between meditation sessions, I experienced an ongoing sense of immutable bliss. So it was, again, one of those cases where he's actually candid, because he was asked to be candid by the Dalai Lama. So, quite a yogi. Quite a yogi. Incredibly humble. So that's that. So I took care of one of the stories anyway. Oh, yeah. So, good night. Oh, and James has James, a message, so I'm going to split. James has about a five-minute...